0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast, I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is the second part of a two-part mini-solo series on the ethics of voting. In the first part, I sort of explored the institutional side of that, and I'd probably recommend listening to that first, because I think I reference it occasionally in this, and you might just want to go back to that. Also, um, just the argument I make here will sort of be less convincing in the absence of that. Like I say, this question of, like, should strong progressives vote seems like one question, but it's actually a bunch of different questions, and in this one I'm focusing on one sort of specific track, and I'm not saying that's the only track, but, like, just be aware I have tried to cover all of all of the tracks or hey if you want to just jump straight in you know I'm not about to try and tell you how to <laughs> how to live live your life um I don't think this one needs much in the way of introduction as always if you enjoy the show please do consider supporting us on patreon I do these big long format things uh, advertisement free because I think it's nice to just like. Explore an argument in depth without being interrupted by underwear sales. And, you know, I'm only able to do that because I get Patreon support. So, patreon.com/political philosophy podcast, patreon.com/political philosophy podcast. The other way you can um, help support the show is by sharing it on your social media or recommending it to friends. And, as always, genuinely, genuinely grateful for anyone who does either of those things. Um, I was a little bit nervous about doing this series, because I know it's something that people very feel very strongly about, and people get passionate about on both sides of the argument, and I do end up coming down pretty clearly on one side. I've tried to do so in a respectful way and the way that sort of acknowledges all of the sort of arguments and counterexamples that the other side brought brings up but you you know there will be some people listening to this who won't like what i have to say and that's okay disagreement is okay right and certainly in this one the argument i develop here is quite provocative at, at, at points um but i don't think there was any way to sort of make this argument without without it being a bit harsh at times right and again that's okay i think you know i always encourage people to sort of seek out positions that might make them feel uncomfortable right i listen to all sorts of people with with whom i i disagree so So, you know, take that as sort of fair warning in that I do have a point of view in this one. And um, I express it, but I also sort of did want to get this out and have one place where I sort of really collect all of my views on this because I think it is important and is also just, like, really interesting. The more I've, like, working on this two-part series made me think this is actually just, like, a really, like, interesting set of issues to be thinking about. Um, And, like, it's kind of, like, fun to grapple with them. So I did sort of want to get it out and, you know, get it out in a way that's sort of, like, authentic to me. And, like, it really does express, like, why I think certain arguments uh, make sense and are compelling and are good things to believe. Um, I guess the final point is if you do agree with me on this, please do go vote. We've still got a few days if you're registered to vote you have time, um, like, please do go do it if you are able to, like, I know you've, I know, I know, I know, we've all been reminded of this, we've all been, like, reminded again and again, remember to vote, remember to vote, remember to vote, I feel like I've heard nothing else, but, like, yeah, like, if you can, go do it. And if you do sort of fall onto the other side of the um, debate that I've been constructing here about whether or not leftists should vote, please do actually, like, really listen to my arguments and, like, really, like, assess them, you know, critically for sure, but, like, really do, like, at least go into this with an open mind, right? Okay, that's enough preamble, let's get straight to it. This is part two of the solo series on the ethics of voting. Reaction to my last episode on the ethics of voting was going to be. Because, as I noted throughout the episode, this is something that can get quite heated. Certainly. You know, people have lost friends over this issue, right? Actually, the reaction was really positive. Um, Even people who I know didn't vote um, in 2016 told me they, they, they like the episode. And I say that not to pat myself on my own back too much, but just because I think the paradigm has shifted a bit. And I think, by and large, people who abstained in 2016 are voting this time. Not all of them, to be sure, but definitely upwards of 50%. I've seen some polling to back that up, and that also seems just, like, anecdotally true from the people I know, and sort of what I see on social media, and all of that. So, I, I think the conversation is is moving forward on that one. Um, which sort of goes to the question of, like, so why even do this episode? Why even do another one? Well, I mean... I don't think it's impossible that these episodes might persuade someone. Especially when you consider the the size of the podcast, you know. If, I don't know, 10,000 people listen to this episode, let's say about half, 5,000, will be Americans. I think that's about what my demographics are. Of them maybe 10 percent 500 sort of fall into this sort of principled non-voter category uh my audience skews pretty left so that might be possible i don't know and then maybe of those 500 let, let's be really cautious and say you know one percent i might get five votes uh, flipped persuaded i persuade one percent of people by doing this episode that seems worth a few hours of my time to put it together to get five extra votes um so that that does sort of seem worth doing, so I'm not um I'm not you know totally against that as a as a as a reason for doing this i I think who I'm more addressing in this one though is people who sort of have voted but reluctantly they did see the bigger picture. But it was sort of something that they didn't want to do. And this was by far and away the reaction I got on social media. When I said, hey, I've done this big, long episode about why, even if you're a strong leftist, you still need to vote. And the overwhelming reaction I got, I was a little bit scared. I was going to get people going, you know, how dare you, you corporate shill out or whatever. Um, which was kind of the reaction when I said that in 2016. The reaction... I got this time was very much more a sort of, yeah, I know, I did it, I hated it, but I did it. (laughs) Like, that, I had quite a few people say that, um, uh, I won't name people directly, but I had at least two comments on Twitter where (laughs) people said, I know, I sent my vote in for Biden and I haven't felt clean since. Um, that, that was much more the reaction. And I guess that's sort of who I'm talking to here. And I want to sort of make the argument to you that you don't have to feel conflicted about this. You don't have to feel like your identities has uh, been compromised. In a very similar way, um, uh, when I did my Republicanism and Violence episode on um, the morality or acceptability of uh, various forms of extra-legal protest, like tearing down statues and so on... Um, I directed that at liberals who I think were quite conflicted. You know, they, they agreed with the protests' goals, but they didn't like some of the tools that were being employed. Um, and my argument to them was: you don't have to feel conflicted about this. You don't have to worry about like incivility or like a true liberal norm observance in this moment. You don't have to feel conflicted. You should just support the protesters you know up to until like people get killed basically was my argument which is quite a radical argument but like that was my argument and i think what i'm saying now is i'm probably more addressing the leftist half of my audience rather than the liberal half um and in a similar very similar sort of tone saying you don't have to feel conflicted about this you can Vote and not feel dirty all week, <laughs> um, as, as one listener put it. Um, and by the way, I don't mean to come down too hard there. Like, I'm not trying to tell anyone off with this one. If you voted, you did the right thing. You feel about that how you want to feel about it. If you feel like, you know, I'm not trying to, like, say you have to feel the exact same way I do, what I'm doing is I'm explaining the reasons I have for why I view this a certain way, and they make sense to me, and hopefully they'll make sense to you too. And I think once you sort of really break it down and ask where's that uncomfortable feeling coming from and put it in a context which history and philosophy and the history of political thought can give us some useful tools to put it in a context, um, you sort of realise that 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 sort of dirty feeling, as it were, is illusory. And you just simply don't need to feel it. And so I'm not saying you have to feel the same as me. What I'm saying is, these are arguments that make sense to me. And um, I hope do to you too. And I think the, the, the benefit of the arguments is sort of one... That they're right and that they lead us to do what we will realise is the right thing. But two, we just feel better about it. Actually, we don't feel conflicted or compromised or anything like that. So, what are, what are these arguments? Well, obviously, the first set of arguments is what I covered last time about is there, you know, a meaningful difference between the parties. And does you know, even if needs of them are exactly what we might want, is it still pretty rational to have a preference for one as opposed to the other? I, I think increasingly, even on the really hardcore left, that argument is sort of being reluctantly, sometimes perhaps, but accepted, that that I don't see serious people. So much pushing that line anymore. Um, people understand that there is, you know, that there's both short term and long term costs to Republican governance. There's short term costs, like I mentioned, um, 800,000 young people losing DACA status. Um, but there's also long term costs, in that the types of long term projects that we might have, um, I mentioned in the last episode, maybe transitioning towards a multi party system maybe trying to eliminate or at least reduce the role of big corporate donations in our politics or change government structures so that they no longer disproportionately represent the will of older white people living in rural areas and we get a, a politics that is sort of more centered to where the genuine political center of gravity is in this country. Um, all of those sort of long-term things are also harmed by you know they're they're, they're at least possible under democrats um whereas under republicans they're impossible and they get further and further out of reach every time republicans win an election i think there is increasingly a sort of acceptance of that although of course people can and will argue the exact details of it and they might place emphasis quite differently to me and and hey, that's all fine. Like these are a bit complicated issues, right? But I think the person who feels conflicted, sort of will sort of go along with all of that to a degree, um, and then just think, ah, oh, but like, like putting my ex next to Biden was something I just really did not want to have to do, right? And I guess there's two responses to that, right? Uh, one of which is to sort of say well, people are going to feel how they're going to feel, and if you voted for Biden, you did the right thing, and you feel how you want to feel about it. Like, you know, I'm not here to, to sort of tell you whether to be happy or sad about a particular thing. Um, I, I I have a lot of sympathy with that, actually, which would make this for kind of a short episode. I guess my only concern is that I think the sort of consequentialist institutional arguments that i made last time are so obvious and overwhelming in this election that people are ready to suck it up and say i don't want to do it but i'm gonna do it because just the total need is greater i I worry that the the, the those two impulses might be balanced out the other way once those consequences are no longer as terrifying and as immediate, because all of the sort of long-term stuff I've talked about, like, for, for this country, even to get to the place of, like, normal functioning democracy, much less some sort of mild progressive liberalism, much less some sort of genuine democratic socialism, was to get anywhere down that road. Republicans need to be out of power for a generation. I just, I can't see any other way around it than that. And I don't think they will be. I I, Say Biden wins. You know, we'll see how that turns out, right? But, you know, most presidents lose control of Congress in their first midterms. What's going to be happening on the state and local level... You know, are the people, as the horror of Trump recedes, hopefully, right? I don't know what's coming. But as the horror of Trump recedes, you know, will that sort of dirty hands feeling sort of start to reassert itself? And instead of sort of continuing the progress or what I see as progress we on the left have made towards political engagement in the sort of 2016 to 2020 era, will it sort of just slowly revert back to what it was? I don't know, I'm not... This is philosophy, not prophecy, right? I don't know. But that is the concern. So I'd sort of like to talk about the dirty hands, the complicity uh, feeling in and of itself and on its own terms. With, again, like I say, the message of you don't have to feel conflicted about this. Because I do want, among many things I want to see happen politically in the world, I would like to see leftists voting to keep the Republican Party out of power in every election we have the opportunity to do so for the foreseeable future. And I think I'd like that to just largely be a part of what it is assumed that leftists do. That it's no longer such a hot topic... That it's no longer something people feel um, you know, torn over or anything like that. It's not this big conversation that we have to have every few years. And I will say I, I am encouraged by the increasing maturity of that conversation. I think we've got better, and I include myself in this, I think we've got better at having it, right? So that is progress of a sort. Um so let's dig into this, um, what, where is this feeling coming from? I, I think at its heart it's essentially a question of mindset and this is tricky because it's quite complex, it's quite subtle and I, I think we're often, all of us, not really aware that we're doing it. Um, I think sort of what's gone wrong is we live in a society where one particular type of mindset, namely a sort of individualist, expressive, consumerist sort of type of mindset, has been allowed to sort of take over everything. And I actually don't take the view that that mindset is always wrong. Um hence this is this is actually one of the reasons why i think about myself as a liberal um, as opposed to like let's just go right to the end and say like a communist or something right i think it's appropriate in some circumstances and not in others um and i think we've sort of uh, uh, some of us have like got that mindset in our head when we talk about this question of voting And it's just not the right mindset. Now, let me try and dig out what I mean a bit by that. Because I think, you you know, the the, the term individualism can mean a bunch of different things here, right? So, So let me talk you through what I mean and how I'm using these terms. Um, And I'm going to start with some unrelated examples that I think will be pretty common sense. So, let's just sort of say, at a minimum, there are at least two mindsets we can have when sort of thinking about what we want to do or what we ought to do or what our preferences are. Let's just say decision-making. There are two different, at least two, different mindsets we can have. One, let's call the individualist mindset, and the other, let's call the collective mindset. Individual and collective. Pretty basic, right? Now, let me give you an example of each. Say I have a bit of extra disposable income, and I go clothes shopping. I'm you know, going around and um, looking at all the different clothes. And I'm sort of thinking, what? Uh, it's, it's not just a rational self-interest thing. I'm not just saying, oh, this one costs more. This is the price comparison. This is the, like, utility. I'm saying this suits me. This matches me. So, for instance, I quite like um, clothing that's, like, formal but has a silly element to it. So, like, I've got a lot of, like, ties and socks that have these very little, neatly embroidered pictures of animals on them. And so you wouldn't see it at first, but um, once you look, it's like, oh, he's got little dinosaurs on his tie, you know what I mean? And that kind of, like, I think sort of expresses something about who I am. And I this this connection came to me just thinking up this example to do on the podcast. But sort of like, that that's sort of my character, right? And So, so say I think when you first start listening to these episodes, um, a friend of mine recently described my solo episodes as, quote, not accessible, but good, um, and I'll take that. Um, and you I, I, can seem very serious, very intellectual, and that's part of who I am. Like, I like intellectual stuff, I like abstract stuff, I like knowledge. But then I think, like, once you get into them and you see how I think, there's a sort of silliness and playfulness to how I do stuff. I like just playing around with ideas. And a lot of this is, like, just me having fun with stuff. Like, I think my Ideologies of the Ancients one is just, like, it's just fun, right? To, like, think about ideas of, like, idealism versus materialism. It's just, like, cool to think about, And that even though I, I, you know, use long words sometimes, and, like, I'm really into all of these books and histories and whatever, at the heart of it I don't take myself too seriously. Um, So I don't know. You might totally disagree and think I'm coming off as just, like, an utter insufferable prat or something like that. But that clothing style that that I'm, I'm picking up on is sort of me communicating. Both to other people and also to myself, sort of, um, it's it's me sort of saying something about myself, right? This is like how I like to see myself. Um, And hopefully that's something other people like and they they respond well to, right? So I want to pick up on a few elements of that. One is individualistic. I am thinking about me, and there is sort of like the rational self interest thing going on when I shop for clothes. I'm not, you know, if there's two pairs of black socks that are functionally equivalent, and one costs more, I'm going to buy the cheaper one, say, right? So there is that sort of individualism happening, but there's also an individualism happening that's expressive and that's social. I'm not making these decisions completely disregarding other people, right? Um... I am asking questions like, if I dress in a certain way, uh, maybe like implicitly, subconsciously asking questions, like if I dress in a certain way, how will other people see that? Will people understand that it's sort of signalling what I want to signal about myself? But it's it's, it's still all centred around me, right? And I don't think that's necessarily an awful or terrible thing. Um, By contrast, if I was approaching... you you can imagine shopping for clothes from a sort of collective mindset, which would be, say, if you were required to, like, wear a uniform or something for your job, right? But I think the example I really like is, say I get done with my clothes shopping, got my dinosaur tie, (laughs) happy with that, right? Um and then say later in the day, I have to serve on a jury, right? Now, you know, I think our society is sort of permeated by an individualism, and I don't think we even do individualism very well a lot of the time. I think individualism is far more than just the myth of the egoic individual, and I tried to bring something of that out there, that it's it's, it, it's, it's socially expressive as well. Um, it's about people expressing themselves. You hear that all the time, right? But we don't always live up to it. Um, but there's still areas within our society where that individualism or a sort of narrow, sort of egoic individualism just, just, just gets shut off altogether. And we just start thinking about things with a completely different mindset. So when you're on a jury... You are not. I mean, maybe some people are, but I think by and large... I mean, juries have their foibles and prejudices and failings, as all people do. But I think by and large, when people serve on a jury, they don't think that way. I think most people don't go onto a jury thinking, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? If I'm on like some sort of high-profile case where... You know... um someone, say, accused of financial fraud and, you know, you can imagine in a world in which everyone matches the homo economicus sort of libertarian vision, people, if not instructed otherwise, would be running out from the jury to, like, check how it might affect their stock prices and voting on that basis. I'm not saying stuff like that never happens, but by and large, that isn't how people think about it. And and they not only that, but they would regard someone else thinking about it that way as wrong. When we run a jury, people ask themselves: Is this person guilty or innocent? the, the self just disappears entirely, and you're completely within um, a collectivist view. You're sort of thinking, say, to take a really extreme case: like, We've got someone who's accused of being a serial killer, right? Um, so, on the one hand, we don't want, if he's innocent, to have someone spend the rest of their life behind bars when they didn't do it. On the other, and I use the example of a serial killer for this reason, we don't want to let someone go free who will very likely kill again if they're guilty. And... There's, there's no sort of self in that. And, and what's more, not only is there no, like, how does it line my pocket self, it is nothing to do with this much more sort of expressive self that I talked about. We don't ask questions like, you know, how does this signal my personality to others, right? And by and large, we try and we take active steps to try and make sure that that sort of expressive self is sort of shut down as quickly as possible. I think the following thought would make sense, right? I think a lot of people could imagine themselves saying something like well, this guy seems like an utter jerk and I don't like him personally Mm. but the prosecution did not succeed in proving their case beyond reasonable doubt Um, so I have to let him go I'm not saying juries always live up to that. They all, we all have biases that feed their way in. But actually, like, most people, I think, would agree with that sentiment, right? I mean, obviously, say in the hypothetical case where reasonable doubt was not established, most people would sort of agree. Yeah, that's the right way to be thinking about this. You, you, as far as possible, you're trying to remove the self and you're focused only on the collective. You're focused, I mean, in this case, on the accused and of, say, like, potential future victims should you let a guilty man go free. And you're trying to just look at the best evidence you have and sort of come to your best impartial judgment on, like, what's best here, right? That, that's, that's your function. And like I say, I think most people for all their failings and possible prejudices, actually do approach jury service with that sort of mindset. I'll I'll bracket for the moment the concerns and objections to the criminal justice system I have. Just to say if I was actually on the jury for a serial killer, I would be casting my vote, um based on whether or not reasonable doubt had been met, right? Like, even though I'm a prison abolitionist, I think you, you, I, 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 I wouldn't carry that forward in that particular scenario. I would accept that prison is a very imperfect institution, but, like, in the case of, like, a serial killer or something, I, I think you, you'd, you'd have to just accept that that's the institution that's currently there to deal with people like that. that. That might get scaled down a little bit. Like, for lesser stuff, I might vote, so as to say decrease the likelihood that someone goes to 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 prison or something or like maybe let them off with a lesser charge or something but for like that case i would approach it in a pure public orientated you know collectivist way and i think most people would right like that like even hard leftists would like approach it that way so i'll just bracket that whole set of concerns um, I use them more to establish two ways of thinking. Um, the individual, and I've been calling it collectivist. You could also call it public, public orientation, right? That's a phrase that comes up again and again and again in the history of political thought. Um, because collective can have a negative connotation. There's a few things about that example. I think that's pretty obvious though, right? That like when you're shopping for clothes versus when you're serving on a jury, your mindset is just quite different. Your orientation, as a philosopher would say, like what, what sort of direction you're pointing in, is different. Before you even get to making any decisions, before you even look at any clothes or hear any evidence, you're already set up to think about it in a certain way. And I want to sort of distinguish two layers here the setup of how your mindset is how you're orientated what direction you're facing you know individual or collective and then what decision making you make those are two separate things right um you know i'm set up to think about clothes shopping in an individual way but that doesn't necessarily tell you what clothes I'm going to pick out. There's sort of a, a, a content that gets, gets expressed through that individualism, right? Um, and, and that's the first point that I want to make about this sort of distinction that I've set up, is that it is about mindsets as much as it's about, like, rules. So I think we can sort of reduce this sort of, like, liberal thinking down to just saying, oh, it's about rules, it's like, you know, the liberty principle or something, you can constrain someone's actions when they're harming others, but not when they're not otherwise. And what I'm trying to show here is that, yes, certainly there is a tension between, you know, the individual and the collective in how we regulate people, right? There's also just a tension in different ways of thinking about things, Right, that's sort of what I'm trying to draw out here, is that there's there's two different orientations, two different uh, mindsets. Right, the next thing I want to note about the sort of distinction that I've created is it's not as if there's individualistic people and collectivistic or public-facing, shall we say, people. I can well imagine a scenario where I do my clothes shopping, and then I'm like, oh, late for the thing on the jury, and I. it turns out the courthouse is just over the road, and so I run over there, and within a few minutes, maybe even a few seconds, everything about my mindset, my psychology, what I would regard as a legitimate or illegitimate reason has changed on its dime, completely flipped, Right? and so that's really important i think in noticing that and i imagine almost everyone listening you you know just take yourself out of like your political doctrine of like thinking i'm a communist and i hate individualism or thinking like i'm a libertarian and i think or individuals are all that matters just take yourself through that process you'd go through the same right all of us would right and what that tells us obviously is that all of us have the capacity to approach situations with one of those two mindsets. We all have both of those mindsets in us, and we get one out on one occasion and the other out on another occasion. And by and large, we don't even notice that we're doing it, right? And that, I think, is really interesting. That we, it, it's like Wittgenstein says, glasses you've had on for so long you forgot that you were wearing them right? We don't necessarily notice us getting one mindset out in one scenario and another in another, but that is what we're doing all the time. So the first point is it's not just like formal rules or something like that. It's about how we think about things. It's about the mindset, the orientation we have. Second point is... The, the two mindsets are different, but they're different for the same person in the scenario I set up. And that's not unique to me, it's a feature of all of us, right? And I think what follows from that is my third point, which is I think the question we should be asking here, and this is just what this is, by the way, this episode is Toby being a big old liberal, right? I think what a lot of my lefty listeners like is that, like, I'll start from quite liberal premises. To say something ultimately quite radical or unexpected or something like that. And then sometimes I'll start from quite radical premises and argue something much more seemingly um, conventional. In this one, I'm just being a big old liberal. This is just a particular, this is just a a very liberal way of thinking, right? And I, I don't, like, I just think it's right. You know, and it makes sense to me. And um, if you're, you know, leftist who's been reluctant to a lot of um, um, what I've been saying, uh, you know, who's reluctant to the label liberal, just let's just put that to one side for now, and let's just say, you know, forget the label liberal. This is just totally liberal thinking. But just like, just does it make sense? Does what I've run through so far about like how your mindset is different in a clothes store? And on a jury um, makes sense. What, it does, can you sort of see how people behave that way? And can you see how, like, we both have both mindsets and we, we, we all have both mindsets and we get them out on different occasions? Like, does that, does that feel like a plausible story to you? And if it does, great. You know, don't get too bothered by the fact that, yes, there are parts of liberalism that just make a lot of sense, right? So. The reason I, I just did that little little preamble is that's the last thing I want to say, is when it comes to looking at these two mindsets, the fact that we all just have them and take them both out on different occasions, um, we have at least those two, and I'll, I'll leave open whether or not there's more than that, um, suggests to me that it's not a question of if one is right and the other is wrong. It's more a question of in what circumstances is one appropriate, or useful, or going to produce the best results. And that is essentially this one of the sort of, like, core questions of liberalism. Like, that is one of the core projects, and it, it predates liberalism. That, particularly when thinking about mindsets, you know... A lot of the issues here go right back to the beginning of the canon, right? And that I think does the groundwork to set us up to talk about this feeling of like dirty hands while voting, the feeling of vote shaming, of pressure, of just not wanting to do it, right? And I think you can probably see where I'm going with this, right? Is one of the things that happens. With these mindsets is not just that we use one in one scenario and another in another scenario. It's that we we think, like at least subconsciously, we think that it's right to do so and we react very badly <laughs> to people using what we perceive of as the wrong mindset. So just let's just stay with my example of the jury and of um of uh a, a clothes shopping let's say someone you're in jury deliberations and someone makes an argument to you that at its heart relies on this sort of expressivist individualism about like how how it makes them feel and whether or not like it signals who they are say they said something to the effect of. Well, I mean, I understand your argument that he's guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. That is what the facts seem to say. But um, on the other hand, I just didn't feel inspired by um, the, the prosecuting attorney. Like, I just, you know, he seemed boring to me and, like... To be honest, I didn't really like either of them, you know? So I just don't feel, I need to feel inspired in order to vote to convict. And I just don't feel inspired. Now, again, this is a purely hypothetical case, so it's not like, is the guy guilty or not? That's not what I'm asking. What would you think in that scenario? I think you'd sort of say something to the effect of like, but that's not the right way to be thinking about it. Nobody cares if you were inspired by the, 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 one of the attorneys you did what they say make sense. Is this man guilty? Right? Um, l- l- then, let's say, that person continues and they go, well, I just think the expectations we have of these attorneys are so low and I think they ought to be like trying to inspire people. Like, that's what gets the votes. Surely, like, they're going to win more cases if they're, like, inspirational and they sort of really affirm, like, how I like to see myself. That's just a much better strategy. Again, you see the analogy I'm drawing here, right? Um, what would you be thinking about that person? Not only like that they're making an error, you'd feel that they're a bad person, right? This isn't how you should be thinking about it. You would be annoyed with that person, right? Like I say, people react very badly to the wrong sort of mindset being used. But, But let's flip it and let's try to see it from both points of view. Say you're out shopping for clothes with a friend, right? Um... And, well, how do you talk there? You talk, you you communicate with each other in this sort of, like, individualist, expressivist sort of way, don't you? You say things like, oh, that looks good on you. Oh, that suits you. That's so your style. Like, like every word sort of affirms that, that this is the mindset that we're talking in, right? This is the orientation both of us have. Oh, that works. That looks great on you. I wouldn't be able to carry that lock, right? It's it's, it's all individualist and expressivist at its core. But what would happen if you started um, bringing words in from the sort of collectivist, public-facing discourse? Like, like, what are you? Let's bring these two together. What is that person on the jury? You know who you're annoyed with. What what would you sort of say to them? You'd say something like, "You have an obligation to take this seriously, and to cast your ballot, you know, cast your use your voice on the jury for like what you think is best for for the you know, what you think is true here, and not not like just are you personally inspired by it?" Like, for, for God's sake, man, right? Now imagine that language coming at you in the shopping context. Like I say, let's connect the two now. What about, what about if your friend turns around and says, um, most people don't like to see someone uh, wearing a tie with animals on. And I say, well, it's not a work thing. I just, you know, if I want to dress up, I might wear it. And they say, no, you don't understand. You have an obligation to conform your tastes to what is best for everyone. What you think about it is quite irrelevant, buddy. Whoa! Hang on! So how are you now feeling when that sort of public-facing collectivist language has been brought into a scenario that you feel is the proper domain of the individual? Right? This is a very difficult boundary to sort of police, right? And and, and we get hung up on it all the time. Like, where does one end and the other begin? So if someone tells me I have an obligation to wear a green tie because that's the colour most people like, I tell them to fuck off, right? But if they tell me, well, the company that made this um, um, is notorious for racism say, or uses child slave labour, say, then suddenly maybe the language of obligation does come in there. And that, like, as a consumer, I have to, like, express my sort of preferences and sort of, like, show my individualism in a way that's sort of bounded by these other sets of obligations. So these sorts of, like, navigating when you have one mindset on and when you have the other on is really tricky, and this is essentially, like, a big part of, I think, what a mature liberalism is, is to try and just, like, start sorting that all out. But you see the analogy I'm drawing here, right, about why this conversation is so difficult sometimes, in that whether or not you're sort of seeing the act of voting through the individual or the sort of public facing, the collectivist-like mindset will really determine how you see people who see it differently will just recoil at the very language that they're using. So I, I did the the, the the cases because they mirror it, like if someone says. Like if you view voting both feet in the camp of like a collective public facing responsibility, right? This is about, you know, all the arguments I just covered last time, which candidate will do more good than harm. And I include long run good of stuff like structural reform, money in politics, changing the rules of the system. I include both sort of long run and short run consequences. if If someone sort of says, you know, I, I sort of agree with all of that. Sure, like the the eight hundred thousand DACA recipients, their lives matter. I just don't feel inspired. I think I, I don't think politicians have any right to my vote. Right? I, I need to, They need to. They have an obligation to inspire me. They they can't assume my support. Um, well, that's the individualist expressivist language, isn't it? That's like when you get attacked in the clothing store because don't you realise more people like green? You say, I don't have an obligation to conform to people. I'm going to choose the stuff that speaks to me, right? Like That's sort of what's going on there. And, and, and again, where if you see that person using that sort of individualist, expressivist language to talk about something you firmly believe is in the sort of collectivist public-facing camp, you're gonna be mad at that person, aren't you? That's not how you should be thinking about this, they might say. Who bloody cares if you feel inspired about how you, how you vote? What conceivable difference does that make to anybody? You think those DACA recipients who are gonna get deported give two Fs about how inspired you felt, <laughs> right? You think, you think the millions who are going to lose coverage if Trump-appointed justices strike down the Affordable Care Act, you think they care how you felt about this? And so people get mad, right? They get really mad. But on the other side, if you think that voting has a symbolic value and that voting is about an expression of who you are, then doesn't then you're in the position of like someone telling you you have an obligation to dress in a way that like the majority of people like there's this sort of feeling of like get out of my face dude right how dare you talk to me like that right it's my bloody body i will I'm not going to run around naked, but beyond that, I will put what I damn well please on it, and it is none of your business. And isn't that the exact same... I mean, the arguments aren't exactly parallel, but it's the exact same emotion you get um, when people say, I'm just sick of being vote-shamed. It's my vote. I can spend it how I want. People don't have an obligation towards it. Like, you can't just say I have to vote for someone. You need to inspire me. You need to make me want to, right? Like, what, what's sort of actually being asserted here, right, is we're sort of, in both cases, getting angry that someone has a mindset that we think is inappropriate, right? That's sort of what's going on here, I, I think, at its heart, right? Now, of course... That is not the only thing that's going on here. And I think this is why I started um, this short two-part series with this idea of argument jumping. Because when I try to sort of dig this out, I find people then revert back to like making consequentialist arguments. So if you sort of say, let's really sit down and break this down. I think the language you're using to talk about voting shows an individualist mindset that I would argue is not the right mindset for what we're discussing here. It's a public act, and it should have a public mindset, I think, right? People will go, but but it doesn't even work, or, like, like the two-party system will continue as long as we keep voting for it. Um. Now, I've covered all of those in the first part, and I did that first part, I spent quite a long time with it, because I just sort of wanted to just, like, take them off the table, right? Like, y- you have my arguments with respects to those in full. Hey, listen, you can agree or disagree, right? But, like, that's sort of what I think about that. I just want to really zero in on this issue of, like, individual versus, like, collective or public-facing, mindsets and the sorts of languages and rhetorics and discourses that accompany each and how we see some sort of appropriate sometimes and really not appropriate others um, because like it's not everything that's going on for sure, but I think that is a big part of what's going on here. Um, and I think it's a big part of why why the conversation derails, right? So, here's sort of the first thing I want to get into this before I even sort of say who do I think is sort of getting this one right. I think you know my view already, but like I, I've also just become fascinated with this conversation as a conversation, right? I think it tells us a lot of really interesting things about ourselves. Um, that we, like you know, the Wittgensteinian glasses you've had on so long you forgot that you were wearing them. I think it shows us and reminds us um, about a lot of stuff, and about a lot of stuff, actually, that political philosophers have been banging on about for, 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 for quite some time. I think, so, so, so anyway, the, the first point I, I want to make is there's yet another potential source of misunderstanding here, which is, I think, it's very easy to conflate... Criticising someone for approaching a situation in an individualist, expressive way and what it is that they are expressing. Let me try and break that down. Um, So there's the two mindsets. There's like the individual mindset, the expressivist. What does this say about me? Does this validate my personality and who I am and how I like to see myself? You know, does it excite me or does it disappoint me? That sort of whole thing, right? Um, And then there's the sort of public collective of, like, what is the right thing to do for the group here, right? Um, Me saying that you're wrong to approach it in the individualist way is not the same thing as saying what you are expressing is invalid, although it is going to feel like that's what I'm saying. And and this is what's so complicated about this, is what a lot of principled non-voters are expressing about themselves are very good things. What are what are people sort of saying through through the the, the act of um, abstention? Well, sometimes not very much at all. They just forgot to do it. But um, like like you burn your bust, people, or like there's a certain element uh, within radical black activism that views the act of voting as um, sort of symbolically poisonous essentially. What, what are they expressing? They're expressing a deep dissatisfaction with the way things are. They're expressing a distrust of people in power. Um, they're expressing a desire for a radically better world. They're expressing, perhaps, to some degree, a sense of alienation from the world as it is currently constituted. And the thing is, on their own terms... All of those things are very sensible things to believe, you know? Um, Like, we should be distrustful of people in power. We should be unhappy with the way the world currently is constituted. Um, And so that's not actually the disagreement. The the disagreement is, 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 like, is the act of voting... Is that a way to symbolically express those things about yourself? Is that the right way to? Is that the right mindset? It's a question of mindset, not what you're communicating through that mindset. And I think this is again um, some of the really unpleasant things I've had said to me in this conversation. And by the way, people on my side of the aisle, I'm just going to make this point real quick. We're always quite carefully policed in terms of the language we use, don't vote shame, don't talk to me like that, you know? Fine, and I'm all for trying to let the heat out of this one, but I think that the, the same sort of respect has to be shown both ways. People have said absolutely vile things to me um, in response to quite modest, like, nicely phrased arguments. Um... I I think I know where it's coming from, but I would say, like, you know, we want the same things in the world, right? Now, the thing is, if you're conflating, and to be fair, it's a really, like, subtle distinction to draw, critiquing that you have an individualist mindset here with what it is you are using that to sort of express, that's where a lot of the misunderstanding comes in, in that... I think it can really sound to people like what I'm saying is not that it's just, that's just not the way to think about it at all to begin with, but that I'm saying you're wrong to feel alienated from the system, you're wrong to distrust people in power, you're wrong to see injustice in the world, right? That's, I think, what people sort of hear, and and that's why, you know, I get So many times, the reaction back is like, you're a shill, you're a sellout, like... Someone asked me once, when when did you sell out? Like, what? What are you even talking about? But I think that's because they feel like their identity and like what they're trying to express is being called invalid. But it, it, it also puts you in a weird position on the other side, in that you hear people on the sort of pro-voting side sort of saying something that sounds a hell of a lot like, you're right, but you're also wrong. That can be kind of com- confusing to both communicate and to hear. People will sort of say stuff like, look, you're right not to t- sort of trust the system. And you're right that the, the current setup of things is 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 massively unjust, but and then sort of say something that sounds like the opposite. It sort of sounds like saying you're right and you're wrong because I think it's really hard to untangle this idea of mindset with the sort of arguments that you're making within that mindset. Right, like it's the mindset that's the issue here, not like the overall political world view of people necessarily. So so just to note this, um, this sort of discourse of, like, viewing voting sort of expressively or symbolically, um, as, as, I, as I'm sort of saying, with this, like, individualistic mindset, um, sort of burn your busters are not the only ones who do that. Other people across the the the, the spectrum do it and um, in many ways that are much worse, to express worse things about themselves. So, just for example, think about the role that, like, machismo plays in a lot of right-wing politics, and some left-wing politics. Um, Think about this sort of, like, trolling quality that the the modern right has, of, like, (laughs) they vote in a way specifically to trig liberals, (laughs) right? Um... There's all sorts of ways people approach voting as expressive of who they are as a person, um, as opposed to, like, a tool that we have to, like, make certain changes within a certain domain, right? Like, as, as opposed to, like, as you have a responsibility to try and make the world better, right? Um, So people use voting in this sort of individualist, expressive, symbolic way to express all sorts of different things, um, some of which are not very nice at all. Um, And, you know, on the other hand, um, the the sort of the people on the left who refuse to vote use it to express something that's actually quite sensible, right? Um, It's just that's... I would maintain not the mindset that we should be thinking about it with. So I spent quite a lot of time setting that up, right? But I think it does sort of matter. So if you're with me thus far, I think we can sort of agree to this much, right? Like, we, we have both these mindsets, and we think that in some scenarios, one is appropriate and the other isn't. And I think probably most people will be with me on regarding the jury thing in a sort of more public-facing way. Now, I can hear a counterexample of, like, what about if, like, you've got one of these cases where someone's being prosecuted for something that's, like, massively over-criminalised, like they got caught with a small amount of drugs and now they're facing mandatory 15-year minimum. You might say in that scenario, surely you, you want to buck the system and break it then, and like vote not guilty even if they are. Um, yeah, actually, I don't dissent with that. Um, but that's all public-facing reason, right? None of that is like individualist, expressivist, whatever. You've made me a mere morally consequentialist argument, and I'm like, yeah. So like, like the and that's something else I want to tease out here, in that having. Um, a sort of public-facing, commun- group-focused communalist attitude and mindset isn't the same thing as endorsing the, the overall behaviour of a group or the um, sort of norms and power structures, you know, within it. Like, And I think that example of, like, setting someone free to um, just really has no business going to prison at all, is a good example of that. Now, you could make arguments the other side about the value of the rule of law as sort of an abstract principle, and, like, what obligation do we have to, um, you know, and to uphold... Yeah, and, and there's just library shelves on those sorts of political obligation questions in political philosophy, right? Um, but all of that is more or less public-facing arguments, right? You, you 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 might so like that's all works with what I'm saying. So anyway, I could just sort of see in real time. I sort of saw that as a as a counterexample, but I actually think that just confirms my point that we largely agree that the sort of communal public-facing mindset is the correct one for like how you think about how you behave on a jury, right? Um, And the individualist one is appropriate for, say, clothes shopping, possibly bounded to some degree by, like, ethical consumerism and public dignity. But, like, in principle, like how you dress yourself or something like that, I think we can sort of agree that falls more within the individual principle. And so I think sort of what falls out of that story is there are certain things that um, the public-facing communal mindset is appropriate for, and there's other things that the individual mindset is, is appropriate for. Now, you will get people on sort of the ideological extremes, as it were, who will want to collapse it all into one thing. So, a lot on the political right will say it's all individualism all the way down. Like you know, communists will sort of say, really, to the extent that people are sort of well, actually, I'm not sure even communists would say that. Like Karl Marx has a certain amount about like guys doing poetry in the evening and farming during the day and stuff. Um, and I think nobody actually lives their lives that way. Nobody's all one, all the time. That, that, that would be really psychologically weird if someone was. Um, anyway, so I think there's, there's something we don't pay attention to as much, though, which is the mismatches. So if you have two mindsets and then two sets of things in the world, you have a four-by-four four grid. So you have individual mindset... And communal mindset, right group mindset. Now those can be applied to one of the one of two things, right? And I'll just borrow um, from the language of liberalism and say, public and private things. right? We should be individual in our mindset about private things and we should be communal in our mindset about public things. But those are only two squares on the grid, if you see what I mean. Like, what happens in the mismatches? And I think this is, this is like, so interesting. Um, the mismatches in my head, I sort of call them conformism and corruption. Here's what I mean by that. If you're trying to exert the communal mindset in a private decision, that's kind of bad because it's like forced conformity, right? The example of saying someone has to dress a certain way, they have to practice certain hobbies and so on, and you sort of see this throughout the liberal tradition. A lot of on liberty uh, is sort of about this problem, right? And you know what, actually, I'm going to read you some of on liberty. Um it's it's been a a good few solo episodes since I've read to you from on liberty. It is it is overdue. Um I'm going <laughs> to yeah, I love this book so freaking much. So I'm going to read you this um passage where I want to just call attention to a couple of things um about it. One is you know when he talks about like you know, individuals living their own lives, he's not just talking about, like, the state not coming in and, like, sort of telling them what to do. He's he's talking about that as well. He's also talking about, like like, peer pressure, essentially, like, moral constraints, constraints of, like, social pressure and so on, right? And... I think he's also here talking about, like, mindsets, as I've been sort of describing them. Um, and he's saying, you know, it's, it's so sad that, that people apply the wrong mindset. And he just puts it so exponentially better than um, I ever could. So this is from On Liberty. Quote, In our times, from the highest class of society down to the lowest, Everyone lives under the eye of a hostile and dreaded censorship, not only in what concerns others, but in what concerns only themselves. The individual or the family do not ask themselves, what do I prefer? Or what would suit my character and disposition? Or what would allow the best and highest in me to have fair play and enable it to grow and thrive? They ask themselves, what is suitable to my possession, what is usually done by persons of my station and pecuniary circumstances, or worse still, what is usually done by person of a station and circumstances superior to mine. I do not mean that they choose what is customary in preference to what suits their own inclination. It does not occur to them to have any inclination except for what is customary. Thus, the mind itself is bowed to the yoke. Even in what people do for pleasure, conformity is the first thing thought of. They live in crowds and exercise choice only amongst things commonly done. Peculiarity of taste, eccentricity of conduct, are shunned equally as crimes. Until, by dint of not following their own nature, they have no nature to follow. Their human capacities are withered and starved. They become incapable of any strong wishes or native pleasures and are generally without either opinions or feelings of home growth properly their own. Now, is this or is this not the desirable condition of human nature? End quote. I I mean, isn't that lovely? Um, And isn't that so right? And like, you can map what I'm saying onto that. This is one of those mismatches. This is where it's gone wrong. This is a, a, a sort of collectivist mindset about private stuff. And that's like conformity or conformism. Like, nothing good's really coming from that. Like, people are so much less than they could be because of it. Um, yeah, sorry leftist listeners, I am just being a big old liberal (laughs) in this one. Let me be free. Let me enjoy my John Stuart Mill, okay? Um, and I just, I think that's, like, obviously true, right? Um, but then there's the, what about the other mismatch, right? So, what about when we have, um, an... Individualist mindset about things that are public and primarily concern groups. Well, you know, Mill is most known for, um, this the, the 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 stuff he does on the other mismatch, the sort of conformity one, right? And that that's some of really the 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 sort of really at the heart of On Liberty, isn't it? But he also says in On Liberty, quote. "...the spirit of a commercial people will be, we are persuaded, essentially mean and slavish whenever the public spirit is not cultivated by extensive participation of the people in the business of government." End quote. Now, what I think he's talking about there is the other mismatch, and I think Mill was sort of quite aware that, like, there is this problem of sort of the logic of capitalism to like totalize everything. And this idea that the that like when the individual mindset takes over everything, that's essentially mean and slavish, you know? Um, and, and his his answer to that is that the you need extensive participation of the people in the business of government. And you know, we, we pay much more attention with Mill to on liberty, because that really is the sort of dazzlingly original sort of truly exceptional work of his but I do think you, you do want to read it in conjunction with on representative government which is a bit more of a mundane work it's, it's less well written um, It just it's stuff other people have said and I, I find on representative government valuable not because of the specific proposals in it I, you know, I'm not advocating for like plurality voting or like a lot of the other stuff he puts forward I think that's just sort of Mill. Being a person of his age and a Victorian, you know, um. But there's a lot in on representative government, on the cultivation of the public spirit, and of by having people attend town hall meetings or serve on juries or like have the franchise, right? That that like you're you're getting them used to discussing things as part of a group. I mean, again, to use my language, like. You're getting them used to uh, having scenarios where they're approaching things through the communal mindset, right? now um, that's really old, and the mismatches, I call it corruption. I'm borrowing a certain amount of um, my argument and uh, my language here from Zephyr Chow, right? who certainly I don't think anyone would say is an establishment shill politician. She was one of the first congressional candidates to endorse Bernie Sanders, for instance. But she's also very exercised by this problem. The problem uh, of individualism overriding and overtaking everything and as sort of forgetting that part of ourselves of, like, on the jury, where not only do we not think that way, we do everything we can do to stop ourselves thinking in that way right? And this this has a huge um, a, a amount of tradition in thinking of this as corruption. You know, the modern term of understanding of corruption is quid pro quo, so, like, you take a bribe or something, but that's not the understanding of it within um, the, the, the liberal tradition, but also just within, like, the, the, the sort of um, classical tradition. Aristotle talks about this, about, like, how you know, when you're making decisions as part of, like, a government body, like, what determines, like, the good from the bad is whether it's done for private interests or public ones, like, what mindset you have. Now, of course, then Hobbes famously disagrees with Aristotle and says, essentially, like, that that account of corruption is sort of incoherent on its face because to Hobbes people are at least, according to one read of Hobbes, people are like always self-interested. Not well, even Hobbes says stuff to the contrary. At other times, and like in American history, um, you, you see this again all around the founding. There's this idea, um, there's this persistently misquoted Madison uh, uh, quote, where he sort of says, "If if if people were angels, we'd have no need of government." And what's what's inferred from that? is that sort of political actors are necessarily sort of bad and we need systems to constrain them. Now that's definitely part of Madison's thinking, but no one one is more about the cultivation of public spirit than Madison, right? And the understanding, I think, of human nature that sort of permeates the entire discussion uh, uh, around the American founding isn't this idea that people are necessarily bad, so like the government should have lots of checks and balances to constrain them. It's the idea that people can be either good or bad. People can be either... You know, when they're in government, they can either be selfish or public-serving. And that the purpose of government is twofold. It's to, to, to put obstacles in the way of the bad, but also to positively enable and draw out the good and that's just a very classical understanding of what corruption is. Um, and you can see it in the case of a government official, I mean is isn't Trump the type one example of this, he clearly approaches the office of presidency corruptly. By which I don't mean necessarily that there's explicit bribes, although Well, that's a whole other story. What I mean is he he asks the individualist questions, right? What is in this for me? How do I make money out of this? And more than that, how does this validate... There's there's sort of that expressive component of individualism as well, isn't there? Like, what does this say about me? Like, I'm a tough guy and tough guys don't wear masks. Something like that, right? Like, that's corruption to me. It's, it's not right. Like, you know, I think the model, I mean, the model of what a good politician should look like, I mean, what do we call them? We call them public servants, right? What sort of, what assumptions are embedded in that? Is, I mean, what are we saying there? We're saying that, look, we're not saying politicians have to, like, starve themselves or they can't enjoy a glass of wine or music or whatever but what we are saying is that that when they are making decisions about what level taxes should be or whether or not to build a bridge or a road or a school the questions they are asking themselves are at their core always about what is in the public good and that not only are they not thinking individualistically about this? They're, they're doing everything possible to stop themselves from doing that, right? I, I think that's a story that should lock in and make sense um, when it comes to politicians. What I would want to say is that populaces, that people in general, can also be corrupt. You know, you can be corrupt in a business setting, but you can also just sort of, be corrupt, I, I, I think a lot of people in the U.S. sort of vote for corrupt reasons. They vote because it'll trigger the lips, or they vote because, like, they see that as expressing a sort of machismo identity or something, right? Um, or, yes, um, they see it as expressing a sort of, like, being against the system, Right. And I think, like, Mill's quote about, like, the spirit of a a, a commercial people will always be essentially mean and slavish. There's something of that there, right? I don't think that the public is sort of uniformly corrupt, but I think that's what lies on the other side of it. And I think, like, one of the big takeaways of this sort of, like, liberal way of thinking for me is that these are both problems. It's not necessarily about the struggle for individualism against conformity or about the struggle for, like, a sense of public responsibility against a sort of private selfishness that under capitalism has been allowed to consume everything. The, the, the weird bit about, like, this, and what I think makes it so special and beautiful, especially in Mel, you know, I like Mel, is, like, it's both and at the same time. We need far less conformity in our society, and we need far less corruption. And we, 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 we want to be pursuing both, right? And, and sometimes, I, I feel like this is actually what is really being debated here, is to one side, it will look like, and they will use language of, conformity, and the other side will use language of corruption. I don't think anyone really explicitly thinks about it like this, but it just, it tracks and it makes sense in my head, is that, like, if you see voting as a private act, then attempts to sort of tell you you have a responsibility to, like, do this in a way that will lead to the best outcome can sound a heck of a lot like conformity right Um, conversely if you see it as a public act then your opponents will appear corrupt right like I think that's sort of on some sort of subliminal subconscious level actually what's being debated here and it is it is weird that like, like in many ways the like logic of capitalism has sort of Infected the groups who like oppose it the most, um and I don't think they would see it that way, but just the language that's always used around this is so evocative to me of the individual expressivist mindset, and their reaction to criticism is the reaction that we have when. We're doing something private and we're told we have a public obligation. It it does just seem very, very similar to like the clothing and the jury example. So, who's right? And let's end with this. Who's getting it right? You know, assuming you've bought my analysis thus far, should we think about voting as a private or a public act? Now, you know, I guess this is the point where I say, you know, my political epistemology, I believe in essential contestability, blah, 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 blah. You know, what, what is it to be right about a moral question like this? And I don't think there's a final answer. I don't think there's a smoking gun to it. I don't think there are, like, true definitions of political values. What I think is there's a lot of questions we can ask of this. We can ask... You know about this, um, does it do, which way of doing things tends to produce good or bad results? Which way of doing things is embedded within narratives that tend to track truth and say true things about the world? What's useful? What's congruent with other things that we believe? Right, these are the sorts of questions that we ask. So, I don't think there's going to be like like a physics experiment or like a mathematical theorem that proves it. But I think we can just sort of start to ask common-sense questions. You know, has, the, has the, the, the sort of individual expressivist way of thinking about voting produced good results? No, I don't think it has. And, and by the way, this, is, this isn't unique to sort of principled abstainers on the left. I think across the spectrum... It's produced bad results. I, I, I think a lot of the the reasons people support Trump are about using their vote to express something, and often not something very nice about themselves. But but just on, on to stay with the left, I mean, it, it's ironically it's undermined the things that people in that group are trying to say expressivistly. If you you see injustices surrounding inequality, healthcare, racism, and so on. You know, all of those problems have been made so much worse by um, the, the, the fact that Bush won in 2000 um, and that Trump won in 16. And I give those as the results that w- would almost certainly have gone the other way um, with a sort of more full participation of the left. And I can hear people saying, you know, how dare you blame me for that? Like, it's not our fault, it's the fault of X, Y, Z. I'm just saying that that was a consequence of that choice. And that might sound a lot like shaming or whatever. It wasn't the only thing that led to those outcomes. Lots of different things did. People actively voting for, for Trump and Bush did. You know, lots of things led to it, of which that was not the only one. But one, it was... And, you know, if you think about the system as being in, in the hands of, um, you know, billionaires and millionaires, we wouldn't have Citizens United but for those presidents putting justices on the Supreme Court. Like, I, I think there is sort of a right and wrong answer to this, is like, has it led to good results? Has it led to, like the things that we want to see happening in the world, I think there's a pretty good case it hasn't. And like I said in the last one, like kind of the onus is on you now to say why it will this time. I, I, I think you get better democratic outcomes, not perfect, not everything we would want, but you get better democratic outcomes when people sort of ask the right question. In the same way, as you get, you know, a jury is going to only be effective to the degree that people are asking is this person guilty or not, as opposed to like, what would this say about me? Like like once people start approaching jury duty in a corrupt way, according to sort of the definition of corruption I've sketched out, juries are just gonna stop working well as tools. Once a population starts approaching voting in a corrupt way, democracy is going to stop functioning well as a tool, or even functioning at all. I, I also think another sort of set of arguments you can bring here in here is it's just incongruent with other things that, that people about people on the left believe, like, you know, we are not pure libertarians. We do believe people have obligations towards others. We sort of say things like, healthcare is a human right, and what do we mean by that? We mean, yeah, upper middle class people, if your taxes have to go up a bit for Medicare for all, like, you have a responsibility to pay them, right? And I think if someone started talking about that in a very individualistic sense, then you know that wouldn't jive with us. we'd recognize what was going wrong there. And I just think there's something really incongruous about believing in a sort of strong sense in our responsibilities towards others, and then and then approaching it in a very individualistic way, when it comes to one of—and I say one of—the tools that we have to actually make people's lives better, right? Like we, like, like, like—I like say the eight hundred thousand DACA recipients. Voting is a tool to make their lives better. And another way of putting that thought is: if you do believe we have obligations towards other people, which I do. Um, those obligations are always going to be filtered through imperfect in institutions, right? So like, I actually take the case of the the shallow pond seriously. So this is Peter Singer's thought experiment um, that if you see a child drowning in a shallow pond, uh, you can rush in to save them, but it'll ruin the expensive shoes that you're wearing, right? Do you do it? Almost everyone will say yes. You have a responsibility to save that child. And then Peter Singer goes on to say, Do you have a responsibility to donate an equivalent amount of money to um, charity um, if that could save someone's life? Now, I, I, in principle, yes. I, I think that is valid. Now, people start to jump off with the institution bit, right? They start to say, Well, whoa, you know. Da, 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 da. But no, in principle, it's valid. Now, there's questions of efficacy. There's questions of will that amount of money really do what the charity says it's going to do. Those are valid questions. But those are all public-facing questions, right? Are you know, th- 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 in most of our lives, like we- we're not confronted with children drowning in shallow ponds. You'll you'll be lo- you know maybe you'll go through your entire life without an opportunity to help save someone's life that way. If you want to, like, make other people's lives better, that's almost always going to be done through institutions, like charities, community organisations, yes, political parties and systems of government. And that those institutions are imperfect needs to be taken into account in how we go about trying to help others. But it doesn't remove our obligation to do so, right? I think, just like, the, you know, saying there's a balance to be had between, like, the individual and the communal, right? I don't want the communal to take over everything. I don't want people having to give every last cent to charity or work 16-hour days just to, like, help the least fortunate. But I think that there is, there is an amount of someone's, like time and money and like energy and labor you can say yeah you can't live your entire life purely selfishly and you know we have to be serious in our engagement with institutions and saying that our obligations will necessarily run through those institutions doesn't mean we shouldn't criticize them or try to make them better right But we owe it to ourselves to be serious, to do the analysis that I did in the first part where I said if we care about greater equality and stuff like that, what vote makes the most sense? That's our responsibility there. It's, to my mind, so much more analogous to sitting on a jury, right? That's not an endorsement of the criminal justice system. That's not an endorsement of the Democratic Party or much less of the American governmental system writ large, but nor do I think my donation to a charity is necessarily an endorsement. Charities have a lot of the problems that um we associate with political parties. They are top-down. They are often profoundly anti-democratic. Um, They often are not as effective as they purport themselves to be in achieving good things. I think I would like to see, just as I would like to see a reformed Democratic Party, I'd like to see a reformed American constitution. I would like to see you know, a real reformation of how power is distributed in, in workplaces. And that includes non-profit workplaces and for-profit workplaces, right? Um, but the question is, are charities made better or worse when people think about them in a kind of, like, jury sense? And you could think of the project of, like, effective altruism as something along these lines, right? So people like Will McCaskill and so on who really go down and they say, you know, we've studied this and to the sort of best of my knowledge, if your goal is, like, simply trying to save human life... um then your sort of best ban, you know, your, your, your most effective donation is malaria nets. I, at least the last time I checked, that's what it was, right? Like, like that's the public-facing, where You really go through and you say, this isn't about who I am or what validates me or, like, anything like that. It's about, I have an obligation towards others, and, like, I'm really going to sit down and do my research. Or, you know, realistically, in most of our cases, you know, read up on the research that other people have done. And, you know, work out what's the best thing in that space. When and where, and this happens a lot, people give money to charities for reasons that are sort of about some personal narrative or seeing who, reflecting who they are, it tends to make charities worse, even when they're still giving money. Because what happens is, you know, people have a lot of, like... People give money to charities for really weird reasons that are often, like, forms of, like, white saviorism. They're often focused on, like, wanting a personal connection with their donation, which I think is sort of understandable. But it leads to stuff like, sort of, like, sponsor a child. Now, those programmes are good. Sure. But, like, that's not the most effective way, I think, that you can help poor starving. I'll give you an even clearer example. If you care about poverty in the developing world, um, going and personally like... You know, a lot of people say like, oh, I don't want to donate money for clean water in Africa. I'd much prefer to personally go myself and help build a school there, because I'm more of a hands-on person. I am sorry, and I, I, again, I'm not critiquing what someone is trying to express. What they're trying to express is, I like to help directly. They're, that's a good thing. I'm I'm questioning the the mindset that they have to begin with, which is it's somehow about their character and who they are. Because I've got news for you, Africa needs a lot of things, and free manual, cheap manual labor to build schools is not one of them. Right, and yeah, you know, even. Like, I want to go there personally and so on. You really have to ask. Like, ultimately, would like the cost of your plane tickets and all that you're putting into that, could you not, if you just took that money and made a donation to Malaria Nets, would it do more good? Absolutely. Right? Charities are made worse by people wanting it to sort of express something about them. I would much rather everyone as someone who has worked in charity fundraising for a long time I would much rather people just approached it as they would sitting on a jury you know of like within the sort of framework of institutions as they exist how can I best utilise the resources I have to further the ethical goals that I have a responsibility to, to, to help other people like you know Charities are, you know, know, or or say like anti-racism efforts in the US, if you're getting funded by rich white liberals who sort of destroyed the neighbourhoods that you're trying to save, then that's not going to lead to a set of incentives that works, right? Um, So I just just think voting charities, serving on a jury, those all fall within that same category. Um, We have a responsibility to other people, and as Mill says, that both includes action and inaction. People can be harmed by your failure to do something. Right? They can, you know... um, I, I think if you're a millionaire or something, yeah, you have a responsibility to give some of that money to charity. I sort of could be swayed on exactly where the line is, you know, I don't think someone sort of struggling to get by with two kids on $30,000 a year has an obligation to give to charity. If they can find a few extra bucks, that's great, but I wouldn't say it's obligatory. I think once you get into, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you, you have an obligation, Right, I'm not sure exactly where the line is there, but and again, I think you have an obligation not to allow fascists to run the bloody country. I don't think it's optional, right? Which is merely to say, I have a public-facing mindset about this, and there's another reason we could bring in. There's a sort of liberty principle argument here, isn't there? That like, you are accountable for things that concern others and you're not accountable for self-regarding actions. Now, people sort of always debate what does exactly self-regarding mean, but I think something like how, what clothes you wear is a great example of that, what hobbies you have. Yes, it affects other people, but not so severely that they have any meaningful claim to put obligations on you about it. If I don't like your jacket, that's my bloody problem, <laughs> right? Um, whereas voting does affect other people. It affects other people, you know, through a sort of collective sense. It's not as if any individual vote is ever decisive. But, you know, ideological groupings, demographic groupings, whatever, their decisions to participate or not... Um, they matter, they affect people's lives, and so I just really, I, I, I think voting is on the um, other side of the liberty principle. Like, like, it is something you're accountable to others for. And making it kind of like, almost like a badge of honour, one way or the other, is just not the right attitude. It is and i think particularly sort of groups that have made not voting almost like a sign of cred a sign of entry a sign of purity almost like we kind of look at someone funny who did i just i mean it's 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 not the right thing if you want someone to sort of do something to signal that they really believe in the cause um have have them do something that sort of requires an, ac- an active sacrifice on their part, not something which primarily affects and harms other people, right? Like, I think a lot of people want a litmus test to, like, show who's real progressive or not. Not voting is about the worst litmus test you can imagine for that, because it's ideally for a litmus test to show if someone's really on board. You want them to show that they're ready to give something up for the movement, right? Not voting is the easiest thing to do ever, but the, it, it, but it harms other people, right? So I just think like it, it has been a real unforced error and an un is a tactical mistake we did not have to make to make not voting a sign of credibility and commitment to progressive values in some quarters, it's led, that idea has led people to behave in ways that have damaged the long-run viability of those campaigns and those organizations. Sorry if this is hard, by the way, but it, it is also true, or at least, like, this is the best that I can do with it, right? I think that the individualist mindset is not appropriately applied to voting. I think we we should be understanding voting as something public-facing and in which it is reasonable to talk about our obligations to others. And those obligations to others are necessarily going to be filtered through imperfect institutions that we have to take a cold, hard look at and decide just as no charity is perfect or whatever, but yeah, we're going to do our best within that system. Same with political parties, right? The final point I want to make is perhaps a bit more of a sort of ephemeral one or abstract one, which is sort of like, does having a, a sort of robust public sense with a lot of things, like, does it make you happy? Is it good for people? Is it is it something that, that we look back on at the end of our lives and think, yeah, yeah, I'm glad I did that. And I think that's also a question you can ask of whether something is public or private. There's a line in Wordsworth, um, that best portion of a good man's life, his small, unremembered acts of kindness and love. His small, unremembered acts of kindness and love. And I think about something like families, right? There's, there's a wisdom there, isn't there? Like, is, is, fam- is like how you interact with your family just all about who you are and what you want to express and how you see them yourself? No, I think we, we all accept as completely normal and unproblematic. That, that when parents are sort of making a lot of decisions, they're not self-sacrificing, you know, they're, they're still enjoying their lives and so on, but they're just primarily thinking about their children. They're primarily thinking about their partners. They're primarily thinking in that sort of group sense, right? And that it is good that they do, and that their lives would be impoverished by not doing. And it's not some big, glorious thing, you know, it's not you saved your child from drowning, of course you would, but but it's much more mundane, it's much more day-to-day, those small unremembered acts of kindness and love, there's no big reward coming to you for doing this, and that's not the point, that's not why you're doing this, and I'll, I'll end, I'll end with that, as, like, my final argument, is it's actually just a better way of being in the world. So, with families, I'll stick with this for a minute. You know, that that Wordsworth line, that's actually um, my dad's favourite quote. And I think it's something he's tried to live his life by. The idea that the best portion of a good man's life is just these small, unremembered, nice things that you do, acts of kindness and love, right? Which is simply to say that he's a good parent, right? Um, I think my mum too. That that, that, that that I am very fortunate to have good parents who, you know, have made a lot of their decision-making sort of through the prism, not of, like, what's best for me or what expresses a particular vision of who I am, but of, like, what's best for the family? And that's not to say they're self-sacrificing or anything like that. And that that's a better way of being with a family, right? Like, like that, that makes your life better to be like that with others. Um, and I, I feel that in myself, you know? Like, if I'm selfish in my marriage and I'm only thinking about myself, that's just not, as good a way of being as sort of thinking about us as a unit you know um i, I have a better life for, for sort of thinking about in a very small sense of course um that, that in a sort of public way a communal way right now i think that all makes sense with family right i think like part of like like, having meaningful family bonds is always going to be about seeing yourself as part of that group. I think everyone can see that. Like, it's a worse life to, to, to like, not love your children or something, right? <laughs> like, to, does that map to voting? This is going to sound weird, but I think it does. I think it does. Um, I think a lot of progressives have a, have a sort of tension... And I think it comes from a really good place, actually, that they they, they, they feel really unhappy about the obvious injustice of the world and about the fact that, like, they are not going to be able to affect the change that they want to see or it just doesn't seem like it's on the table. And I felt this, too, through a lot of my life. And I think to some degree I've, like, sort of thought my way out of it a little bit. I mean, I think it's so understandable, isn't it? To say, look at all these people dying because they don't have healthcare. Look at all this racism. Look at all this inequality. Look at all this homophobia. Look at all of the pointless and preventable suffering in the world. Does it not just drive you mad? Does it not make you feel angry? Do you not feel despondent sometimes, thinking that what we do will never be enough? Right? Do you not hate, like having to be complicit in all of this, you know, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's actually like, uh, just a, so much better to just sit back and treat it almost more like jury duty, or sort of more like the effective altruists do, where you don't give up on your obligations to others. But you, you sort of take yourself out of the picture a little bit. Like, how you feel about it is not the question to be asking. The question to be asking is, given that we have these obligations to others, you know, we have obligations to our family certainly, but I don't think they stop there. I think we, we have lesser, maybe, but obligations to other people as well. Sort of, what are the tools that we have to sort of do the best that we can with those obligations. I I, I think it's almost like a weight off your chest to just, to to be, to sort of deny the, the individualistic instinct of like, how you feel about things. That is to be suppressed, it's to be actively suppressed when we're making decisions about political institutions, right? We should be looking at them and going, what are the tools to sort of further my obligation to others that I have, and how can I use them effectively? And by the way, looking at it that way does not in any way imply an uncritical acceptance of the legitimacy of the political institutions with which we interact. In fact, it it implies its exact opposite. You know, yes, we want to sit down and carefully think, Which candidate has the better policies? But we also want to sit down and sort of carefully think about, like, is a two-party system or a multi-party system the best way to go? Is there too much money in politics? Do the sort of basic constitutional norms that we have make a lot of sense, right? Or are they archaic gibberish that's at least a century out of date. Um, So nothing about sort of the, the mindset that I'm trying to advocate is one of like endorsement of the system. If anything, it's the exact opposite. Thinking in a public facing sense means just sort of carefully examining the evidence, going through everything critically again, just like you would on a jury, right? Like, part of the sort of responsibility you have there on the jury is to sort of be methodical in working your way through all of this. Is there something that you missed? Are there holes in the arguments that people are presenting to you? Now, within that public-facing paradigm, we can then have a discussion about, like, what are the best ways to affect those sort of more long-run changes? And, you know, you can... Listen, you can agree or disagree with me, but I gave you my arguments in, in the first one, right? But I just want to make this point that, like, taking yourself out of it to a degree, it, 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 it's just a nicer way of being, right? I don't... It's not all about me, and it's not all on me, and, you know, I will act in a way as to sort of try and get the most good that I can, and far from feeling that, like, I am a failure because my vision wasn't enacted fully, I actually feel good about it, right? Small, unremembered acts are part of morality as much as big and decisive ones are. Um, let, let's do one more quote, and this is um, from Middlemarch, it's the last sentence of Middlemarch. Quote, but the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffuse, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are so, not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half-owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life, and rest in unvisited tombs. End quote. And there's a moral obligation side to that, and there's also just like a sort of personal side to that, in like, how would you rather be living? How would you rather be feeling about yourself? You know, I've talked a bit about what sort of could have been. I think things could have been better had Bush not won or had Trump not won. But things could also be a lot worse, right? Like, what if Republicans had held power almost uniformly throughout that period, right? I think we would would be a lot further along the path to authoritarianism. I think we'd be a more racist, a more unequal, a more undivided country. You know, you know, we always think about things getting better in sort of progressive discourse, but things can also get worse. And I think that, that idea is really powerful. That, that things are not so bad as they could have been is partly owing to just ordinary unremembered acts, just people looking at the parties, not thinking the Democratic Party reflects who they are in any deep sense, but like on balance this is better, and voting that way, right? And, and voting's just one example. This, this goes for just like so many things, but that things aren't as bad as they could have been is, in part, a reflection of people just showing up and boringly, unexcitingly, often without recognition or without being remembered, just doing their part in making things not as bad as they could be. And that's actually something to feel good about. That's actually something to feel good, that you're the sort of person who not because you get any praise or credit for it, is part of making things not as bad as they could have otherwise been.